Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today is from the Gospel according to St. John, the 17th chapter. You may be seated. My dear friends in Christ, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And Christ is risen, but it's weird that we are here in the high priestly prayer. If you remember the timeline of how everything went, the high priestly prayer comes as Jesus is in the garden praying before he is arrested by Judas and those compatriots of his. This high priestly prayer is coming right in the midst of his passion, his suffering, his agony. And we just celebrated Ascension Day, that that glorious day when Jesus rises up to the right hand of the Father and from there he rules and reigns over the entire universe. This is a glorious thing for us. and We're in the midst of this Easter season, which is glorious too, because here we have our sins forgiven. And in the Ascension, we have the deliverance of that forgiveness of sins. And so it's strange... That here on this last Sunday of this joyful Easter tide, we are in the midst of Jesus' passion. It's strange. And yet, not really. And I'll tell you why. Because the prayer that Jesus prays here, the image is that this is the very prayer he is praying still for you today. You know, there are very few places where you are in the scriptures. There are very few. There are a couple of them. There truly are. One is in John's Revelation, when he sees all the saints surrounding the throne of the Lamb. John sees you. He saw your face up there. And he reports that you were there. This is another one. Because Jesus is praying, and he may not be saying your name like right in the text, but he prays for you. Because you are one who will believe the Apostle's word. Jesus here prays for you. I mean, you could almost do this. Jesus said, I do not ask for these, my apostles who have been with me for these last three years only, my disciples who have followed me with the apostles. I don't pray just for these, but I also pray for David and Robert and Diane and Pat and Kathy. I pray for you. I pray for each one of you. I mean, you can put your name right in there. Jesus is praying for you. And why? Why is he praying, or or what is he praying for? He's praying that we would all be one. Now, that picture is not just to say that we would be unified, that we would join together in ministry, that we would be where each other is, No, this idea of being one is greater than that. It's the very idea of the husband and the wife becoming one flesh. So intimately connected that there can be no separation. 
That is how Jesus is praying for you and for his church. Because all of us are bound up, not in that husband and wife manner, but we are bound together in something so intimate that there is no other way to see us than as one entity, the bride of Christ. And the intimacy that in which we are bound up together is found in everything that we do. That we sing and we pray with one voice. We listen to God's word with our one ear, or, well, two ears, you know how that works. That we are washed in the very same water and the very same word. And that, again today, we will all have the very same body and blood of Jesus put into our bodies. These are these mystical ways that we are bound up together with one another. These are the ways of the church. And when Jesus says that we are to be one, he does mean this. And he does mean the other stuff too. That by being one in the bride of Christ, that we're also tied together in mission and in doctrine, in life, in love for one another. This is what he's praying for. And this is honestly the prayer of the church for the last 2,000 years, that the church would be one. Now, we do know that there are divisions in the church. We have different denominations. We have different beliefs. And that's not good. In fact, to have a belief that is different from what Scripture says is sinful. And that is why we must be faithful to God's word. Because by knowing his word, by teaching his word, by hearing his word, we are always centered in that. And we are taking what we believe, comparing it to the word of God, and rejecting what we believe if it does not fit, and holding to the word of God instead. And the church for 2,000 years has struggled with this, because we still struggle with sin. Our sinful flesh wants to do and believe what it wants to do and believe. And yet the Holy Spirit is constantly returning us to what is true by the very faith that he gave to you in your baptism and the faith that he strengthens through word and sacrament. The Spirit is continuing to guide you to that one day when we will all confess Jesus in the very same way, knowing that very true doctrine and everyone in heaven will finally be Lutheran. Thank you, Diane. It was a joke. I don't know that we will actually be called Lutheran, but we will all be right, won't we? That's the joy. We pray that we would see this day by being one, that we would finally see this day. And we call out to the church, join us. Join us. Be one with us. We call to the unbelieving world with the gospel and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will give you what is true. And we do this because of the very word that has come down from the apostles to today. I mean, we actually see what the apostles are up to right after the ascension, where they're choosing a 12th person to come in and take the place of Judas. And what's fascinating is they don't say, well, Judas was damned from the start. They say he was a member of this group. He was allotted his share in the ministry and he cast it aside. And it pleased God that his word would spread through 12 apostles. 
12 people standing in for those 12 tribes of Israel, which is the church. Now, don't get confused because in a few weeks, well, in a timeline in a few weeks, Saul's going to be going up to Damascus and he's going to be called as an apostle. That doesn't mean that Matthias was a bad choice. It means that not only are the 12 tribes of Israel, the church here, not only have they been prepared and taken care of over the years, but now God also is bringing in the 13th tribe, the nations, the Gentiles, because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so you see what the apostles are doing. They are preparing to go out and spread the word of Jesus Christ to all the world beginning in Jerusalem. And we'll celebrate that day next Sunday at Pentecost. And we do this. We we come to believe through the apostles' word because this is their entire purpose. And God be praised that he gave us the very word written down through the ages which is trustworthy and true. The very word that you can have in your hands is the very word that was written by those prophets and the apostles. These wonderful men of God who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down what God wanted you to know. For 6,000 years at least, history has been going on telling us of this word that is pointing us to Jesus. From the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, it's pointing you to Jesus. Believe in him. And so you do. And why is it then that we are one? Why is it that we believe in Jesus? It is so that we might be in God. Now, this is kind of a weird thing. This is what theologians call the mystical union. We've spoken about that before. Mystical does not mean magical. Mystical means something strange, something uh, inherently mysterious because we don't understand it. And likely, we never truly will. And there's a whole bunch that we could talk about with the mystical union. I could spend months on just each individual idea of the mystical union, whether that's union with Christ, whether that's baptism. I mean, all the different ways that we can talk about regeneration and forgiveness and repentance. I mean, all of this is part of the mystical union. And I'm not going to do that today. But this idea is that God is in you and you are in God. Talk about intimacy. The picture is that you are so joined together that you don't know where one person starts and the other person ends. God has bound himself into you by the very death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. You are dwelt in by the Holy Spirit who brings Christ into you. And you can't separate the Spirit from you. You can't separate Christ from you any more than you are able to separate your soul from your body. I challenge my students at Concordia to go get an x-ray and show me where their soul is. They can't find it. None of them actually ever do this, but they all know you can't find the soul. You can't find God in you either because he has bound himself up in you so much that he is literally within every bit of you Every atom, even every quark, and whatever smaller than a quark, God only knows. He is bound up in you. God dwells with you. 
Talk about Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with you, is with you to the end of the age. And he does this by putting himself in you, by sitting with you, by teaching you, by being with you in your body as you come to him in the supper today. This is this mystical union that we have. All that we know is that God is with us and for us. Why is that? Because God sent his son out of love for you. It's not that God didn't love Jesus. He loves him more than anything else. I mean, if you could like rank the things that God loves, you would imagine Jesus is right at the top. But the reality is, God's love for you has God sending his son for you. This gets really weird and and trippy when you start to think about it too much. But God loves you because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because you've been forgiven, because you've been made holy. God loves you in this way. So he sends his son to actually make you holy, make you righteous, to forgive your sins so God can love you even more. It's this wonderful picture where God wants to be in you, to dwell in you. So he sends his son to die for you outside of you. It's not this feeling of God that allows us to be forgiven. It's not a feeling of God that allows us to know his love. It is the act of God going to the cross and dying in your place, bearing the wrath of God and hell itself so that you would never have to experience it and that you would have everlasting life. This is the joy of being in the bride. That together we are one and walking together in the name of Jesus Christ for his purpose. And we take this word and we hold tightly to it and we give it to the next generation so that they may give it to the next generation, that they may give it until Christ returns. And Jesus, this morning prays for you. With everything else going on in this world, Jesus is praying for you. With 19 children dead in a school, Jesus is praying for you. With however many people it was shot in a grocery store, Jesus is praying for you. With inflation going up and gas prices going up and housing costs going up and Taxes going up and our wallets going down. Jesus is praying for you. With our health going down and our age going up, Jesus is praying for you. With everything that you are experiencing, with everything the world desires to throw at you, to make you turn your eyes away from him, Jesus is praying for you. Because you're in him. And he is in you. He sees your pain. He sees your struggle. He sees your desire to be faithful. And he is praying for you. 
Jesus is still praying for you, my friends. It's not this once upon a time high priestly prayer and then Jesus forgets about you going to heaven and getting busy with everything else. Jesus knows you. He knows your name. He knows who you are. He sees everything about you and he loves you. And he prays for you. And he will continue to do so until the day that he returns to bring you out of this world and into that life which is everlasting in a new, wonderful, and perfect world. And he is going to do this. For Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Now may the peace of God which passes all human understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.